The Island Institute presents From the Sea Up, stories of sustainability from Maine's coastal and island communities. I'm your host and the producer of this series, Galen Koch. In this six-part limited series of From the Sea Up, we explore the diverse array of sustainable seafood that makes up Maine's coastal economy and supports the state's fishermen, aquaculturists, sea farmers, and working waterfront businesses. In this final installment of our sustainable seafood series, we're going big and we're going wild. We're talking about the mysterious, internationally regulated, nail-bitingly strong and powerful Atlantic bluefin tuna. I say nail-bitingly because the reputation of this fish and fishery is one of high drama. So high that National Geographic has sustained eight seasons of the reality show Wicked Tuna on that drama. Despite making great television, the bluefin tuna fishery is a fishery that leaves a lot of consumers puzzled. Is it okay to eat? What's the difference between bluefin caught in the U.S. and the same species caught in Europe? I'm one of those consumers who felt confused about bluefin tuna. I love tuna. I love it raw, I love it seared. But I didn't even realize it's bluefin that I crave the most. I've been that person in the fish market hemming and hawing over which tuna to buy because I just don't know. And over the years, I've watched the documentaries and television shows, heard reports of overfishing and negligent or downright illegal fishing practices globally, and I really wasn't sure how to feel about eating bluefin, or any tuna for that matter. And so this week, we're going to learn a lot about the Atlantic bluefin tuna fishery, and hear firsthand from fishermen and researchers why this fish belongs in a series about sustainable seafood. My own Atlantic bluefin tuna education started pretty recently. On a balmy morning in September, I met Dr. Walt Golett at the Casco Bay Bluefin Bonanza in South Portland. Walt is an assistant professor in the School of Marine Sciences at the University of Maine in Orono, and he leads the Pelagic Fisheries Lab at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. When I meet Walt, he's elbow deep in a fresh tuna head, a head that was carefully handled and delivered by the fisherman who just pulled into the dock with a 600-pound bluefin. So anything that can grow up to 12 feet and weigh almost a ton is something that people are, are automatically going to be drawn to, right? We're all sort of drawn to the megavertebrates, the big things, the rhinos and elephants and lions, and the ocean is no different. And so tunas are these large fish. Um, as people learned more about them, some of the really unique features that set bluefin apart from other species of fish, one is that they're warm-bodied. So that's a really unique feature. When you have a warm body and you have a large size and you have this wonderful body that's just totally adapted to be a long-distance swimmer, um, it gives them the ability to travel all over the ocean. And that's one of the other really interesting aspects about them is that with the exception of the extremes, very, very cold, Arctic, and very, very hot, tropics, these fish really don't have any boundaries. And in fact, they, they've even been found off of Brazil back in the 60s where the water is exceptionally warm. So their size, their physiology, and their movements, I think are the three big things that people are just drawn to. Walt expertly cuts into the tuna head with a saw, revealing two small, almost imperceptible cavities. He reaches inside and extracts the inner ear bones of the tuna, two tiny calcium carbonate structures called otoliths. Walt and his team, Isabel C. and Sammy Nadeau, 
extract the otoliths and a tissue sample from the tuna head, and they record the location and time the fish was caught. That information is provided by the fishermen. The team isn't usually doing this processing at the Spring Point Marina in South Portland. They're usually set up behind GMRI, where they process thousands of tuna heads per season. Um, working with Lisa Kerr here at the Gulf of Maine Research Institute and then also working with Drs. John Walter and Matt Loretta at the Southeast Fisheries Science Center, we're using two techniques, otolith chemistry and genetics, to understand where the fish have actually come from or where they originated from, spawned. Dr. Lisa Kerr is a research scientist at GMRI. She studies fish populations and population dynamics to aid and inform sustainable management practices. And with tuna, that's an especially complex management system for a particularly dynamic fish population. Here's Lisa. When you catch these fish, they all look the same. You can't tell if it's a Mediterranean fish or a Gulf of Mexico origin fish just by looking at it. Bluefin tuna do not have one ubiquitous stock or population. There are three distinct bluefin tuna populations in the world, Pacific, Southern, and Atlantic. In the Atlantic population, there are two stocks, the Western Atlantic bluefin, which spawns in the Gulf of Mexico, and possibly the Slope Sea, and spans the eastern coast of the U.S. all the way to Newfoundland, and the Eastern Atlantic bluefin, which spawns in the Mediterranean and is found in the Med and oceans off of Europe. That eastern stock is more abundant than the western population off the U.S. coast. But bluefin are a highly migratory species, and they don't necessarily adhere to the imaginary line imposed on the eastern and western stocks. That's where Lisa and Walt's otolith research comes in. We work to collect heads um, from bluefin tuna, so essentially something that would be a, a kind of a byproduct or waste after the fish, or, fish is harvest, and we extract um, the inner ear bone of the fish, and this is kind of a calcium carbonate structure in the head of the fish. And what's unique about the structure is it, lay it lays down banding patterns that correspond to the age of the fish. So much like a tree lays down rings and you can count those rings, that's what an otolith does in a fish. And so we can age the fish by looking at that bone. The other unique thing is that it actually preserves a record of the water chemistry the fish has experienced over its lifetime. So it's like sealing that in uh, as it grows. And when we analyze the very center of that bone for the chemical composition, we can tell you if this fish you know, was born in the Gulf of Mexico or the Mediterranean based on the water chemistry being so different from those areas. And that's really how we get to start to disentangle the origin of fish that might look the same when they come up over the side of the boat, but when we do this kind of analysis, we can start to understand the relative abundance of each of these populations in our fishery. We know that they go across the Atlantic from one stock to the other, and to manage them effectively, really what you want to understand is what's that rate, what's the percentage of fish from one side of the Atlantic going to the other and vice versa. If there are a lot of Eastern Atlantic fish that are coming to the Western Atlantic and you don't know that that is occurring, then you get this impression that maybe the Western stock is doing better than it actually is. And instead of having an overabundance of, of this stock, perhaps what you're seeing is an overflow or a spillover of the Eastern stock into the West. 
That data that Lisa, Walt, and their teams gather at their labs at GMRI is extremely precise and extremely important to good fisheries management. To gather that data requires the participation and investment of hundreds of fishermen and dealers all along the east coast of the United States. Fishermen like Pete Speeches. Pete fishes out of Portland, and he not only supplies tuna heads to Walt Golett, but he also tags tuna for scientific research. You have to have the right people doing your research, and that's where it's important for guys like Walt, which he's great about soliciting good people to do tagging for him, to do research. They're, he's getting heads. I think they said they've done over 10,000 heads processed that since his program started, which means 20,000 earbone otoliths to research on and tell you where these fish came and went and where they spent their time and, and see with science, with actual science, what's where these fish are going and what they're doing. But I've always just always wanted to have an understanding and I think the only way to preserve this fishery is to understand these fish and be able to manage them properly. The regulation of bluefin tuna is a global effort and one that seems, especially to an outsider like me, pretty convoluted. Part of what makes the management of bluefin so difficult is that the fish cross international boundaries. The total allowable catch, or tack, of bluefin in the Atlantic is determined by the International Commission for the Conservation of Atlantic Tuna, or ICAT. Here's Walt. That tack is established by ICAT in the Atlantic for us. Then that is given to the United States, to, to NOAA, the, the National Marine Fisheries Service, and as I said, they will distribute it to the user groups. The user groups in the U.S. Atlantic fishery include anglers, recreational boats, Pelagic longliners, once in a while, they catch bluefin, so they have a small allowable bycatch quota. Commercial rod and reel fishermen, commercial harpooners, and purse saners. But purse saining for tuna has all but phased out in the U.S. So NOAA distributes the quota determined by ICAT to those specific user groups. That quota is going to get caught. It's going to get caught regardless. There can be discussions, and there are rather lengthy and sometimes heated discussions, about whether or not the quota that ICAT sets is the most appropriate one. Was it scientifically driven? Was it politically driven? Was there a little bit of both? And sure, there can be discussions on that. But the bottom line is that there's a quota that's implemented by a, by a group of professionals, by the way, that come from not just the United States. ICAT is a consensus body which means the United States just can't unilaterally go in and say, well, we want 2,000 metric tons of tuna. It doesn't work like that. The research that Lisa and Walt conduct at GMRI directly impacts quota decisions, along with other determining factors. But it's not just the data from U.S. fisheries that factors in. Here's Lisa. You have scientists from the U.S., from Canada, from Japan, from um, all over Europe, all these countries that participate in the fishery, both in the East and West, come together to conduct the stock assessment. And everyone's sort of bringing their data to the table, combining it, working together to get the best estimate um, for how many bluefin we think are in the East and the West. And so I think it's a really rigorous process that happens, but there's a lot of uncertainty that it's really hard to get around. So there's this uncertainty about mixing that we're still trying to account for how many fish come from where. And then there's just, you know, obviously a lot of uncertainty with feeling like you have sufficient data collected on something that has such a complex life history and is able to move in, in such large scales. 
If you have any knowledge of the bluefin fishery, you may remember that there was a time when the fish was far less abundant in the Gulf of Maine. Atlantic bluefin tuna has had a real comeback, and the wild-caught fish, like we get in the Gulf of Maine, is a smart and sustainable seafood choice, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Those wild-caught fishing methods, harpoon and rod and reel, along with limits on how many fish can be caught, restricted fishing days, and strict quotas have allowed the population to bounce back. There's been a lot of focus on rebuilding in the past decade, and I think we're now starting to see some real positive signs coming out of the stock. And um, there's still a lot of a lot to understand with bluefin tuna because it's very complex. We're still learning new things. Um, what's nice to see at the that there is evidence of kind of this increasing availability of the resource to the fishery. And nature has something to do with it, too. As I said before, tuna is extremely migratory. They're also big fish, apex predators, and they travel to find fatty fish to feed on, like mackerel and herring. Here's Pete's speeches. I've been involved with fisheries research ever since I started, and I've been on the AP panel, work closely with the AP panel. I'm on the board of directors of the American Bluefin Tuna Association. So research and science uh, is a hot button for me. The fishery, when it lulled in New England, it wasn't the fish were gone. The fish just never came inshore is what the final theories were, is that they stayed offshore for whatever reason. Um, what, we have always been very strong in conservation. We have the biggest measure in the world for legal fish to be sold in the United States. And we, we, did, we made a few mistakes in New England uh, with forage fish, about how the forage fish were being caught, which will drive it, you know, if there's not, they're only here to eat and spawn. That's what fish do. So if there's not food here, they're not going to be here. A less abundant stock of forage fish could have been one reason Atlantic bluefin weren't coming in to feed in the Gulf of Maine. It's not clear. Their habits and lifestyle remain very mysterious. But what is clear is that right now, after years of stock rebuilding practices and some changes in the fish populations in Maine waters, there are a lot more bluefin tuna feeding in the Gulf of Maine. The herring fishery has sustained incredible declines over the last few years, so much so that there's hardly any quota left to catch. And how that ties into bluefin is I mentioned before that they swim a long distance and they've got this souped up metabolism. Well, when they get here, they're ready to eat. <laughs> it's like, I, I need to eat something and I need to eat it quick. Bluefin are coming here to eat and they're coming here to eat stuff that's really fatty. It's like going out in the ocean and just eating double cheeseburgers all the time, right? That's what they, that's what they want. And so with the decline of herring, one of, the, one of the potential outcomes is that, well, our bluefin might go. They might just disappear. But ironically, they're not. They're here in really big numbers. And so I've got um, students in the lab who are actually looking at diet and foraging ecology, and they're finding that, in fact, the, the diet of bluefin actually has changed. It's, it's gone from a herring-dominant diet now over to a diet that's dominant, dominated by squids. And even things like Atlantic menhaden, which historically were here in big numbers, they disappeared for about two decades or so and now have reappeared, and they are becoming more of a staple for the bluefin diet. So it's really amazing how sort of nature fills in the voids. Uh, when it needs to. Studying the foraging habits of Atlantic bluefin is an ongoing project for Walt and his team. This research shines a light on just how intricately woven the ocean's ecosystem is. Regulations on other fisheries, like herring or menhaden, called pogies in Maine, 
affect other fish, not just fishermen. And temperature changes in the Gulf of Maine due to climate change affect fish migration patterns and maybe even the bluefin tuna's diet. There are so many unknowns in the ways in which our ocean ecosystem will change in the next few decades. Unknowns that make Walt and Lisa's research critically important for understanding Maine's ocean and fisheries. As bluefin stocks rebuild in the Gulf of Maine, fisherman Pete Speeches has noticed the change. Pete has been fishing for tuna in New England for almost 40 years, and he's seen big shifts in the electronics used, the fish prices, and how many fishermen are going after bluefin. You know, we just have never seen so many fish as we've seen in the last 10 years. It's, there's days when you can catch three or four a day without any, any issue, and the, you can tell that this is a recovered fishery if you just watch how fast we fill our quota. This last year we filled our June, July, August quota before the 1st of August. Now, that's, there's a lot of boats fishing to do that, but that means there's a lot of boats catching and landing fish as well. There are more boats going fishing for tuna, but that doesn't change the total allowable catch. Like Pete said, the outcome is that the seasonal quota fills faster, so fishermen, ultimately, have less days to fish for bluefin. If you mention bluefin tuna to someone who's not too familiar with the fishery in Maine, you may hear about fish selling for hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars in Japan. This is arguably true. There is one fish a year that sells for an exorbitant price. But that bluefin, caught in the Sea of Japan, has nothing to do with price setting or even market prices. And it's Pacific bluefin, not Atlantic. It's bought as a show of prowess by business tycoons, the first bluefin from the Sea of Japan bought at auction on the first of the new year. Some of the interest in the bluefin fishery is driven by stories, legends, and even inaccuracies. Like the idea that you'll get tens of thousands of dollars for a fish, or even catch a thousand-pound fish. Both scenarios aren't the norm. There was a time when these fish were valuable and... You know, we didn't catch as many per boat then as we do now per vessel. People think that they can go out and catch a 15 or a $20 a pound fish when the average last year was $7 a pound or less. With the price of lobster hitting $6 per pound this year, that price of $7 per pound for tuna doesn't seem very dramatic. And sure, they are huge fish, but these fish aren't always selling for $15,000. But for Pete, and for many other fishermen who've seen the ins and outs of the Atlantic bluefin fishery in Maine, their fishing trips aren't motivated by big dollar signs. It is a way to make a living. And it is a true sportsman's fishery. In Maine and northern New England, we usually anchor up, and it's a process of, of uh, finding those fish, and hopefully one bites your hook, and then we take care of we catch the fish, we dress it, and we bring it into our buyer. If it's multiple fish a day, then we can stay, go back to our anchor if it's productive, or move, and catch our second or third if that's what we're allowed to catch. Right now, we catch one, we, we, get, you know, we haul our anchor up, we come in, we sell it, we go back out if it's another open day. If it's a closed day, we, we take the day off and wait for the next open day that we're allowed to fish. We're allowed to fish four days a week now. We can't, we can't fish on Tuesdays, and we can't fish on Fridays and Saturdays. For Pete's beaches, there's hope for the tuna fishery in Maine, not only in the rebounding fish stocks and the more accurate science, 
but in increased local interest in the fish as a delicious main product. It's been great. The people I work with lately have been buying my fish and from a few other boats and keeping them all local. And it's, a, it's great to walk into a local restaurant in Portland and have local fish that you landed the day before be on their menu. It doesn't have to go to Japan and, and deal with all the, all the pieces of the, of the puzzle of, of transportation and cost and what, you know, there's a bunch of different people that have their, want to take their, their cut out of the fish, so the margin has to be way higher for the fishermen to make any money. It's just a way cleaner fishery to have, you know, just like a lobster. A lobster should come off a lobster boat in Maine and be served up at a local restaurant as a lobster roll when people want it. It shouldn't have to be bought from somewhere else. You know, we shouldn't be serving Florida lobster, rock lobster in Maine. Thankfully, tuna is slowly getting there. When I started this journey trying to understand Atlantic bluefin, I'll admit that I lumped all tuna together, whether that's albacore or skipjack or bluefin or yellowtail. But understanding the intricacies of global bluefin populations has led me to one conclusion. I want to eat bluefin caught here in Maine and along the United States' eastern coast. One of the reasons is that these U.S. fisheries are strictly monitored and regulated, and fishermen work hard to catch these fish, either with rod and reel or harpoon. Yeah, when a fish bites, it's, it's, uh, that's what hooks people on this fishery. It's a very high uh, emotional moment. You know, the rod screams off, you know, the rod goes down, cripples over, and the fish is screaming. It could be doing 40 miles an hour away from the boat. And, uh, all, all hell breaks loose. You know, you're trying to get off the anchor, get the boat started, you got to chase the fish. If you're, you don't have enough line and reel up your other lines, so you don't cut them off and try to keep the fish out of other people's lines and away from their anchors and away from lobster gear. And it's, it's, uh, it's what hooks people. Once you see a bluefin tuna bite, you've never seen another fish bite like that. You know, even a thousand pound marlin on a troll gear is nothing like a bluefin. They're the strongest fish, they're the fastest fish, they're the biggest fish. It's, it's quite an event. And like I say, you only have to see it once and people will be hooked for life. The thrill of tuna fishing, that emotional high, brings Pete back to the fishery every season from June to October. But there are other intangible reasons that Pete keeps getting back on the water every year to fish for bluefin tuna. He is simply a fisherman to his very core. There are fishermen and there are people that catch fish, but the real fishing industry as a whole, it's not just an income producer, it's not just a vocation, it's a way of life, it's a lifestyle, it's not a vocation. And everybody that does it has done it their whole lives or generationally knows that. I love doing it. Um, I don't think anybody can put a, can put a reason on that there's fishermen that do fish that could make a lot more money doing other things and they just love to be on the water i love to be on the water i love to catch big fish i've targeted tuna my whole life it just it keeps me on the water which is where i'd rather be maybe it's a connection to my family roots i don't know if it goes that deep or not i'm i'm not a philosopher that way all i know is what works for me and i'd rather be on the water than on land Thanks for listening to From the Sea Up, presented by the Island Institute and produced by me, Galen Koch. This episode came to fruition with the generous knowledge of many industry professionals at Truefin, Gulf of Maine Research Institute, and Island Institute. 
Special thanks to Dr. Walt Golett, Dr. Lisa Kerr, Kyle Foley, Elijah Miller, Pete Speeches, and Jen Levin for their help and participation on this episode. And if you are an avid home cook, you can purchase fresh Maine bluefin in fish markets in Portland, like Brown Trading Company or Harbor Fish Market. For access to delicious fresh frozen Atlantic bluefin tuna, visit Luke's Lobster's online market at www.lukeslobster.com. To learn more about GMRI's Pelagic Fisheries Lab and Quantitative Fisheries Research Lab, visit www.gmri.org projects. From the Sea Up is made possible by the Fund for Maine Islands in a partnership between the Island Institute, College of the Atlantic, Luke's Lobster, Maine Sea Grant, and the First Coast. For more information, visit www.islandinstitute.org slash podcast.